Welcome to Basic Brewing Radio for Thursday, December 1st. I'm James Spencer. Here at Basic Brewing Radio, we're all about home brewing, making beer at home. Well, this week we conclude our interview with John Palmer on all-grain brewing. In this half of our chat, we pick up where we left off in the process and go on to talk about sparging and pH as it pertains to uh, all-grain brewing. Well, before we get started, I want to mention a few things. First of all, some of you have taken uh, time to list yourself on the Frapper map I mentioned last week. Uh, some just put their first name and where they're from, and some go further and add their full names and a comment, and some have even posted pictures. It's a lot of fun to see names I recognize from uh, past emails and uh, some that are new. I appreciate everybody taking the uh, time to play with the map. You can uh, find a link to the map in the description of this past week's episode, and I'll try to figure out a permanent place to uh, put a link on the site. You just kind of get a visual overview of the uh, a bit of the uh, world of Basic Brewing Radio listeners. Uh, in the shameless self-promotion department, if you want to support this podcast while you're out doing your online holiday shopping, you can click on the Amazon.com link on the BasicBrewingRadio.com site. And if you click on the little black box and purchase something from Amazon, 5% of your purchase comes here to support our efforts here at the podcast. Now, I don't, I don't get to see who buys what, uh, but I do get a list of the items that have been purchased through the uh, Amazon associate link. So if you uh, decide to do that, I appreciate it. And thanks very much in advance and happy holidays. Now, one more shameless item before we move on. Thanks to everybody who's purchased a T-shirt from the site. If you send me a picture of yourself in your shirt, brewing or doing something cool in a cool place, I'll uh, build a gallery to show those pictures off to everybody. You know, it's strange, but uh, most who have bought T-shirts are in warmer places in the world. So go figure. You know, the the timing of the (laughs) marketing the T-shirt in the wintertime. Before I forget, I want to ask for your help. Um, I want to do a show in a couple of weeks on uh, good gift ideas for brewers for Christmas or Hanukkah or Kwanzaa or whatever you celebrate. So if there's a piece of gear that's been on your wish list for a while and you'd love to see it under the tree or in your stocking or wherever your goodies end up, let me know about it. It could be a piece of new technology or something that you've been uh, saving up for. Uh, but uh, you can send your holiday wish list to james at basicbrewing.com or just fill out the contact form on basicbrewing.com. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm going to make your holiday wishes come true. I just think it would be fun to uh, see what everybody's dreaming about uh, this time of year and their their, their brewing wants and, and needs and desires, and we can uh, have fun talking about it. You know, maybe you're having uh, visions of counterflow word chillers dancing in your heads. Well, I have to admit that I was in a bit of hurry to get things wrapped up before leaving town for a Thanksgiving last week, so I didn't give the attention I usually give to our mailbag segment, and I apologize for that, and I hope uh, I can make up for it this week. We've got some good email that we can sink our teeth into. Jerry from Rocky Mount, Virginia, wrote in after hearing Chris Colby and I talk about ice beer in our interview about the 10 hardest beers to brew Jerry reminds us that freezing fermented wort and removing the ice crystals is considered a form of distillation, 
and is therefore illegal, at least in the United States. Uh, coincidentally, I was reading a book that uh, talked about that very thing over the holiday, and I appreciate Jerry bringing that up. We want to make sure that you are aware of what the law states. Russ from Boston wrote in to ask for a refresher on how to make Gerard's tea. If you'll remember from our discussions with Gerard Lemons, uh, he suggested steeping hop pellets in hot water before using them for dry hopping. Uh, Gerard suggested using just enough water to cover the pellets, and the water shouldn't be above 75 degrees Celsius, and that comes out to uh, 167 degrees Fahrenheit. Now, you shouldn't have to soak them for very long, uh, just to warm them up before you get them into the uh, secondary fermenter to release some of those aromatic uh, oils that are responsible for the good hop aroma. Russ was worried about the chance of uh, infection from dry hopping, uh, but the risk of infection is decreased after primary fermentation because the alcohol lowers the pH of the beer, making it less inviting for the little beasties that may cause problems. Matt writes in from Pittsburgh with a two-for-one question. He does a split boil with a small pot and can only boil two and a half to three gallons at a time. He's concerned that boiling malt extract at that concentration will lead to some darkening. Uh, Matt says he's not overly concerned, but asks if he were to add his extract near the end of the boil to avoid darkening, how would that affect the protein hot break? Well, I went back and listened to uh, Bob Hansen in the recent episode of the show where we talked about tips for brewing with extracts, and he said that the protein has been removed from the extract with a whirlpool before it's either dried or concentrated. So, knowing that, it sounds like you don't have to worry about protein hot break from extracts. Uh, second, you can just add your extract uh, at the last 15 minutes of the boil to sterilize it, uh, so you don't have to worry so much about it being darkened. Now, the second part of Matt's question has to do with isomerization of his hops. He says he's read that more concentrated worts do not pick up as much of the hoppy bitterness as less concentrated worts, and Matt wants to make an ESB, but with a small boil, he's concerned that he might not get as much out of his hops as he would like. Well, I read a, a couple of articles in Brew Your Own and uh, Zymergy magazines over the holidays, uh, that shed quite a bit of light on this subject. Chris Colby wrote a big article on hopping for stovetop extract brewers in Brew Your Own where he addressed this very topic. And uh, in Zymergy, Tom Nickel wrote an article about hopping high-gravity beers. Both articles apply in Matt's case because he's brewing an extract beer, and if he's boiling his extract in two and a half to three gallons, what he's got is essentially a high-gravity wort that he's going to dilute with another two to two and a half gallons of water in the fermenter. So the rules for boiling high-gravity worts apply there. Now, as I understand it after reading these articles and other sources, your hop utilization starts to suffer in worts of specific gravity higher than 1.050 or 1050. you got to remember that if you're shooting for five gallons of wort with an original gravity of 1050 in your fermenter, and you're only boiling two and a half gallons, then that two and a half gallons has to have a gravity of 1.100 or 1100 because you're going to dilute it. Well, that's a big beer. So, in a case like that, it makes sense to start your water boiling, add your bittering hops to just the water to extract the um, alpha acids from the hops, 
and let them start isomerizing because the uh, water is, of course, much less dense than wort. Then, 15 minutes before the end of your boil, add your extract to sterilize it. That way, you should get more bitterness from your hops than if you were to add the extract with them at the start of the boil. But wait, there's another factor. There's apparently a ceiling on the amount of IBUs, or international bitterness units, that you can get into a solution, and that ceiling is apparently 100. So they say that no matter how much hops you add to a volume of wort or water, you'll top out at 100 IBUs. Now think of what this means to Matt and his split boil. If he's uh, shooting for a huge beer with lots of IBUs, if he gets 100 IBUs in his 2.5-gallon boil, that means that he'll only get 50 IBUs in his fermenter because he's going to be adding 2.5 gallons of water, uh, diluting his IBUs by half. So, if you're going to be making a huge Imperial IPA with tons of IBUs, uh, over 50, it uh, looks like you're going to have to get a, a bigger pot. Now, I hope this stuff makes sense, and I, and I hope that if you're a beginning brewer or you're thinking about getting into brewing for the first time that you won't let all this technical detail worry you. You know, beer is pretty forgiving. You can do a lot of things that are technically not the best practice and still come out with a beer that's way better than most of what you'd find in the store. I say get your basic processes down and get comfortable with brewing and have fun with it. And then as time goes on, you can start sweating the details like uh, squeezing every bit of IBU out of your hops as possible or avoiding one or two degrees love bond of darkening of your work. To me, making beer is an escape, a diversion, uh, something that I just love to do. I'm to the point that I can tweak my process and worry about the tiny technical details um, because to me, the basic brewing process is pretty much automatic. But in the beginning, I think if I had to worry too much about hop utilization or pH or you know other technical things, I might have just thrown up my hands and given up. So go at your own pace and have fun and uh, worry about the details later. Graham from Washington, D.C. says he's been brewing for about 10 years and says he's finally got enough room to move up to a full-size boil. He's looking at buying a turkey fryer, but is concerned about whether the aluminum pots that come with them are good for brewing. Well, in the first part of our chat with John Palmer, he recommended aluminum pots because of their even heating ability. Uh, there was a concern for a while that cooking with aluminum would uh, cause Alzheimer's disease, but I think that has since been disputed and disproved. Uh, now, this is another one of those much-talked-about topics in the in the homebrewer community. Uh, I've used an enamel pot for many years, and I've been happy with it. Uh, my friend Steve just bought an aluminum pot, and he seems to be happy with that. And others out there swear by stainless steel. But uh, as I understand it, that can be pricey. So, you know, it depends on who you talk to. I've mentioned on a past show that if you're looking to buy a turkey fryer to brew with, be sure that you get one that's stable and uh, won't tip over easily for safety's sake. Uh, I took a part in a brew session a couple weeks ago where one of the guys had a turkey fryer uh, that had a nice, stable burner. So they are out there if you look hard enough. Now, I hope that makes up for the short mail segment this past week. On to our interview with John Palmer, author of How to Brew. Uh, he took a break from writing the latest edition of his book 
to talk to us about all-grain brewing. Last week we started with uh, milling of the grain and we got up to mashing, and uh, now we'll take it from there. Now that we've got our uh, we've got our our mash in the in our mash louder ton, and let's say that the the time is is over on our on our rests, and we've we've got our sugars uh, converted. Now we've got to get that wort out of there. Let's talk a little bit about uh, about loudering and and about sparging. Where where do we go from here? Okay, well yeah. So an hour has gone by. You've you've done your single temperature infusion mash in your mash ton. An hour has passed, and now it's time to drain the wort out. Um, you've got what we call your first runnings are in the cooler or in you know in the grain, and that's um, a very high in sugar content. You can sparge this or not sparge it in, in a couple of ways. There's three methods. There's uh, no sparge where you just drain that wort and ferment it, and that's a very uh, high gravity wort that you're draining. You've got a continuous sparge, which is what is used by most of the commercial breweries around the world, where as you drain wort from the ton, you're adding in uh, an equal volume of water on top of the bed to rinse all the grain of the sugars that they still contain. And you're trying to get as much extract out of those sugar, out of the grain as you can because that's, you know, that's money. That fermentable sugar is money to a you know, commercial brewery. Um, in between, you have a method called batch sparging, where you drain the first runnings, and then you add back another you know, three or four gallons of water to the ton, stir up the grain bed, uh, you know, let, it, let it sit for a few minutes, five, ten minutes, you know, leach some more sugars out of that grain, and then drain the second runnings and combine those two runnings in your boiling pot. And 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 that's another that's another source of debate. Uh, <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> There's another controversy in the homebrewing community on on whether uh, you know whether to fly sparge or or whether to uh, to batch sparge. Yeah, I I started out and so so many of us did doing fly sparging or continuous sparging where you got the the rotating sparge arm above the grain bed and you're carefully sprinkling water on and and spending a good hour hour and a half you know gently rinsing the grain bed and connect and collecting seven or eight gallons of wort in your boiler um, trying to get enough extract out of the out of the uh, grain to make your your recipe a lot of time and effort and uh, satisfying if you if you're able to do it right but Batch sparging uh, and no sparging represent a lot less time invested in in obtaining that wort. Maybe you're going to use another pound of grain in your recipe uh, to make up for a little difference in in an extraction efficiency. But uh, when you can just you know finish that mash, drain the wort, pour in another three gallons of water, stir it around a minute drain it again and start your boil you know you've you've shortened your brew day by an hour yeah and then you can go to the birthday parties and such that's right <laughs> and and also if you're fly sparging you've really got to watch out that you don't over sparge and start drawing uh, astringencies from the from the tannins of the of the husk that's right when uh when you're fly sparging 
you don't want your sparge water temperature to exceed about 170 degrees Fahrenheit um, because you will the tannins or the the uh, tea-like character of the of the barley husk is is more extracted at those higher temperatures. When you've had a beer that's been you know oversparged, uh, it's like it's like sucking on a used tea bag. It's a very dry, puckering kind of finish to the beer, uh, and it's from the it's from the, what we call tannins or polyphenols that come from the grain husks. It's a it's a noticeable defect. Yeah, and uh, when you're that's one of the one of the drawbacks of fly sparging is that you need to know your system well enough and plan that recipe uh, with enough grain so that you can get enough wort out of your grain um, and quit sparging before you pull off enough sugar out of that grain where the only thing left to extract is the tannins. And you've got to watch your gravity that's right. as you're sparging, and that's difficult to do because the water is so hot and you've got to correct uh, you know, in your, in your hydrometer for the hot water temperature. And yeah, it's, a lot of people learn to, do, to brew that way, and it's, it's not difficult. It just takes a lot of attention. It's, it's more to worry about. Yeah, yeah. Batch sparging and no sparging uh, are a lot easier in that regard, and that's what I'm advocating to new brewers these days in my book is to, to baseline a batch sparge or a no sparge method just because they're a lot easier, uh, a lot less effort to get into all-grain brewing that way. Well, let me, let me read the question from Mike in Salem Springs. Mike says, uh, concerning your upcoming interview with John Palmer, I was wondering if you might ask him to weigh in on the issue of to sparge or not to sparge. This seems to be a hotly debated topic among homebrewers. Oversparging, of course, can cause an overabundance of tannins in the brew. Uh, I should have read this question earlier, I guess. <laughs> the idea being that the brewers do not have the equipment sophisticated enough to control temperature and flow precisely during the sparge. And they can skip that step by upping the grain bill by about 1.4 and increasing hop quantities 1.1 or more, collecting about 3 gallons of liquid, then diluting with an additional 2 gallons of boiled and cooled water. So he's not sparging at all, he's saying. This would not be an option for micro and larger brewers because of the additional additional grain expense, but for home brewers, this additional expense would not be that great. So he's saying that uh, you know if you don't want to sparge at all, you just add more grain, which is you know relatively inexpensive for all grain brewers. That's right, uh, and uh, just make up for it that way. Yeah, no sparge brewing is is nice. It it decreases the complexity once again, where you don't have to add. Uh, more water, you know, recirculate, stir, and drain again. Uh, you're just going to uh, take take that initial draining of the of the mash tun and to your boiler, and then to your beer. You can plan your grain bill and your uh, water volume to get uh, your boiling your intended boiling volume and boiling gravity. You know, say. If let's say you want to do um, oh, a five-gallon uh, batch of 1050 uh, beer, a 1050 original gravity, uh, you know that you can collect. Um, where's my handy dandy calculator? That's <laughs> uh, buried under some papers here. Um, but you can collect, you know, six gallons of say a, a 1056 wort or a 
to um, make that 1050 at five gallons. And you can plan out your grain bill to, to, to achieve that, you know, from a single draining, you, where you don't have to dilute in the fermenter. Of course, if you've only got a five-gallon brew pot, you know, on your kitchen stove, and you can only really comfortably boil three or four gallons in that pot, uh, then, yeah, you would want to uh, start out with a higher gravity boil and then dilute in the fermenter just... Uh, because of your space considerations. In, in a similar fashion to, that a lot of people do with uh, an extract boil. That's right. Now, there's a there's a, a lot of discussion on uh, the forums that I read and uh, the American Homebrewers Association's tech talk that uh, comes out on on um, pH and people being concerned about the, the pH of their water uh, in the mash and in sparging. Uh, can you weigh in on that, and how, how concerned do people have to be with uh, with pH when they're doing an all grain brew? Yeah, this is this is a very deep topic. You have to be concerned uh, to some extent. Brew, brewing is a very you know forgiving process. I mean, you know, a hundred years ago, five hundred years ago, a thousand years ago, brewers were making beer without all the technology we have today, um, pH meters included. I don't know if you knew this or not, but the whole concept of pH and measuring pH was invented by brewers. <laughs> it, was all, it all came out of a brewing laboratory. The reason they did it is because they knew that different grain bills, different kinds of malts in different waters from different locations uh, would either work or it didn't work. Hmm. Um, the beer would not turn out. The, the starch conversion wouldn't work well uh, if they tried to brew a very light beer in uh, Munich or if they tried to brew a, uh, a dark beer in, uh, in, in the Czech Republic in the Pilsen area. They just, you know, the... the uh, the beer wouldn't turn out right. So the water, the local water, and the alkalinity of the local water combines with the acidity of the malts to create a balance um, that, the, that the mash enzymes uh, look for. The enzymes in the mash are most comfortable with a pH range of about five to six. Now I could get I could get a lot deeper into that and say, okay, this enzyme wants a pH from 4.8 to 5.2, and this one wants one from 5.3 to 5.6. But uh, in general, they will all work between five and six pH. You can read a lot of scientific papers where they've measured the optima for these pages uh, these uh, enzymes. Um, within various experiments and come up with different optima based on how they measured it and so on. But uh, like I said, brewing is a very robust process, a very forgiving process. If you are an average brewer, uh, do you uh, do you have to worry about pH uh, when you're with your home uh, brewing system and, and doing an all grain brew? Generally, no, you don't. Uh, generally, if you take your local water, uh, 
um, whether it's a well or you know just the tap water. Uh, people, you know, off the uh, off the uh, city water system, are probably a lot uh, have a lot better luck than someone going off an average well. But that water, that average water with an av- a beer of average color, say like a pale ale, um, you know, something that's an amber color, that beer will work. The mash pH will be in the right range for all the enzymes to work, and the beer will turn out fine. It's when you get into uh, an area such as uh, South Texas where there's a lot of alkalinity in the water because uh, of limestone, um, when the alkalinity is very high, uh, you need to brew uh, very dark beers, d- beers that have a lot of malt acidity to balance the alkalinity in the water to get the en- the mash pH in the right range. Hmm. And that's how the you know stouts of uh, Ireland were were invented. Uh, they have alkaline water, hard alkaline water in the Dublin area, and uh, dark beers worked. In the Czech Republic, in the uh, town of Pilsen, they have very soft water, um, water without uh, minerals, and very low alkalinity. And their dark beers didn't work. Dark beers come out very harsh tasting, um, but but light, you know, light amber Pilsner beer uh, was the style of beer invented there. Um, in fact, that's how all of the world's famous beer styles originated, really, is it's a combination of uh, the malts and the water that was available for brewing. So it's when, as, a, as a beginning all-grain brewer, you really should uh, be aware of this, this concept of uh, what, what's called residual alkalinity, that is the balance of the alkalinity of the water, the hardness of the water, and the acidity of the malts. Uh, and um, you would look at your local water analysis report and find the ion concentrations that drive residual alkalinity. And uh, by looking at that, you know, gain some understanding of what beer you could brew uh, most easily with your water. You can adjust your water with the use of brewing salts such as uh, gypsum, calcium carbonate, calcium chloride, and uh, change your mash pH and adjust it to brew uh, a style of beer that would otherwise be difficult for your area. And that's when we really start getting into a lot of chemistry. And in my book, in Chapter 15, I try to lay that out uh, in a pretty logical manner, explaining what's what, how to read a water report, and I have a nomograph uh, that helps you understand uh, the residual alkalinity concept for your area. But for your first batch, don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah. For the first batch, don't worry about it. Go ahead. Try it. Um, you're probably going to be okay. It's when, if if that first, first batch doesn't convert well, it doesn't seem to turn out well, then you may want to take a little deeper look at it. Or when you try to, if you want to say, I want to build, uh, brew a golden pilsner, or I want to brew a Russian imperial stout, uh, that's when you probably need to get a hold of your water report 
and do a little bit of investigation to find out if those two extremes and you know in beer style are achievable with your water and and that might be also where it would be a good idea to join your local homebrew club or exactly. or get in touch with your local homebrew store owner and or a local expert who's who's brewed these beers and knows a bit about the the local water and uh you know get glean some information from them that's right yeah yeah, it's poor brewers down in Texas. I uh, spent a week with them uh, down in Houston, and uh, they routinely um, dilute their tap water with distilled water or bottled water to get get a hold of, get control of the alkalinity hmm. uh, in their water to do um, a variety of beer styles. And they are some excellent brewers down there. I uh, I tasted a lot of really good beers. Now the, there's uh, the makers of Starsan have uh, come out with a product, uh, I believe that uh, stabilizes or or it, or it uh, purports to stabilize the mash pH at, at what five point two. Yeah, it's it's the product's called five point two. It's um, I've used it. Um, my my water here in Los Angeles area is uh, pretty pretty average it's uh, moderate hardness moderate alkalinity and uh, I tend to brew um, amber colored beers so I don't I don't need the product but I've talked with five star about it and they said it was designed specifically to uh, help brewers of average colored beers to achieve uh, a mash pH of 5.2 in areas of alkaline water. So, you know, in the Texas area, in the Midwest, where you have more alkalinity in the water than hardness, this 5.2 product added to the mash will help uh, bring that mash pH down to 5.2, which is about the middle of the optimum range for the amylase enzymes. In case in regions of the country where you have hard water, that is where the calcium and magnesium concentrations are greater than the bicarbonate concentration, uh, that water is not alkaline, and uh, the 5.2 product really isn't needed there, although it will still work. Well, I tell you... Uh, all grain brewing. I, we've just scratched the surface, haven't we? On <laughs> yeah, there you can you can spend a lot of time with it and a lot of time enjoying it. Well, I I certainly have enjoyed our our conversation uh, this evening, and uh, uh, maybe we can have you on again when your when your book comes out, and uh, or maybe even before then if we get enough questions. Uh, I'd be happy to. Uh, you know, there there home brewers out there or at least the ones that have been uh, writing to me are hungry for information and and really enjoy hearing people talk about it so uh the uh, and tell us where's the where's the website where we can see your book howtobrew.com that is uh h-o-w-t-o-b-r-e-w.com and the navigation on the site is uh is great um just how to you know, move between chapters and within chapters, and lots of great information out there. And uh, you know, there there are a lot of questions I'm sure that uh, that can be answered by by going to your book. Yeah, and if you get stuck, you can always email me directly um, from the site. I probably answer I don't know five, ten emails a day. Wow. Well, we appreciate your time, and uh, I'm happy to. 
and uh, we, we wish you luck and success with your next edition. Thank you very much. Once again, we appreciate John Palmer taking the time to talk to us. You can read the entire first edition of John's book at howtobrew.com. But next week, you're invited to come along to a blind mice brew, a kind of a potluck brew session where brewers bring ingredients to be unveiled at the brew session, and the result is a surprise to everybody. Uh, Also, uh, we get to hear how Casey from Siloam Springs makes an all-grain starter with a uh, French press coffee maker. So you'll want to tune in for that. And don't forget to send in your brewing holiday wish list so we can share it with everybody in a couple of weeks. If you have uh, brewing questions, show suggestions, or just want to say hey, write to james at basicbrewing.com or just fill out the uh, contact form on basicbrewing.com. And don't forget to tell us where you're from. And if you wanted to get into home brewing while you're on our site, you can check out our DVD, Basic Brewing Introduction to Extract Home Brewing. We'll walk you through the process step by step. You can see a listing of the fine folks across the country who sell our DVD. And if there isn't a vendor in your area, you can order it online. Well, that's all until next week. Until then, thanks for listening. I'm James Spencer, production help for Basic Brewing Radio, and our website is provided by Kelly Dotson. Basic Brewing Radio is a production of active voicing. We'll talk to you next time. So long.